0: This is Crucial Tech, a podcast about the technology that affects us all, but few of us understand, presented in a format that can give you some basic understanding in the time it takes to drive to the grocery store. I'm Luke Covey, an independent journalist who's been writing about various technologies ranging from renewable energy to digital security for more than 40 years. I probably know more about it than you do, and if I don't, I will introduce you to those who do. This is part two of our wrap-up on my trip to the virtual Black Hat USA 2020 conference. Uh, the, the next section, we're going to be concentrating on some specific speakers. Uh, one is Nate Beach-Westmoreland, who is the head of Cyber Threat Intelligence for Booz Allen Hamilton, and also Renee Resta, who is a chief researcher for the Stanford Internet Observatory, two very interesting places. Uh, Nate Beach Westmoreland focused primarily on what's going on with Russian hacking of our elections. Now, the thing is, we know that, the, that Russia, in the form of the GRU, their intelligence uh, service, we know what they want to do because they've publicly stated it on their website. Unfortunately, unless you can read Russian as Mr. Beach Westmoreland can, uh, you can't really know what it is they're saying. But essentially, on their own website, they say that their goal is to attack and interfere with elections in any country whose whose own objectives of interferes with the Russian agenda. First, by discrediting the national media. Hey, have we seen that at all? Then spread disinformation that supports the Russian narrative and undermine candidates and legislation that oppose Russia friendly governments and shape that domestic opinion by attacking social divisions on both sides. Mr. Duresta will go into that in more detail. But I wanted to step into uh, this segment of uh, Nate, Beach's, Nate Beach Westmoreland's talk, where he gives the, um, the timeline of how far back Russian interference in our elections has gone. So let's step into uh, Beach Westmoreland's presentation right now.
1: Now, Russian covert election influence activities didn't start in the cyber era. The Soviet Union's intelligence agencies engaged in covert election interference as far back as the 1920s. Consider the case of Washington Senator Henry Scoop Jackson. In 1976, he ran for the Democratic Party's nomination for president. He was a Russia hardliner, and so, according to archival KGB documents, the Soviet Union aimed to derail his candidacy. At the time, the KGB frustratingly noted that he had never been involved in any major political or personal scandal. So they went digging for dirt. They looked everywhere, even digging down records in Norway, where his family had migrated from almost 100 years earlier. Eventually, they settled on discrediting him by portraying him as being secretly gay. He had married late in life and earlier in his career, rumors had circulated in DC that he was a confirmed bachelor, having lived with male roommates at times. So the KGB forged several documents to confirm this narrative, including a memo from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The KGB then sent the files to newspapers and his political opponents. As far as I can tell, the files were never published, but Jackson's campaign failed to gain traction regardless. In short, Russian foreign election interference isn't new, nor are many of their fundamental strategies. What has changed is who's doing it and what tools they use. In September, 1985, then CIA Deputy Director for Intelligence Robert Gates told Congress that the primary Soviet organizations responsible for foreign political influence activities were the KGB and the Soviet Communist Party's political organizing and propaganda departments. So then the question arises, How did covert election interference become a military mission? To answer those questions, a good place to start is the late 1990s. Around this time, Russian foreign policy elites began to coalesce around a concept called Informazione Protifoborstvo, commonly translated as information confrontation. This argues that international relations are fundamentally a struggle between states over what is known, perceived, believed, and felt. For those of you Kremlinologists concerned with the Russian psyche, the choice of word protivobortstvo is interesting. It connotes a sense of fighting in opposition rather than a clash of two systems, suggesting a worldview of Russia responding to an informational assault. Hence, a more literal translation is closer to an informational counteraction. This struggle is continuous, existing beyond traditional concepts of delineated war and peace. For this reason, the sometimes translation of the term as information warfare can mislead about the concept, as it erroneously suggests that Grusser perceived itself as being in a uniquely heightened state of conflict. A wartime battlefield clash of armies, so to speak, represents just a fraction of modern military engagement. Former chief of the military's general staff, Yuri Balievsky, noted in a 2017 interview that, the victory over the enemy in this conflict can be much more important than victory in a classical military conflict because it is bloodless. Yet the impact is overwhelming and can paralyze all of the enemy state's power structures. In short then, international relations for Russia is a conflict over the political or national capacity to oppose, ignore, or support its agenda. Contrast the sweeping concept of a nation struggling for an advantage in the information space with the much narrower and more siloed Western concept of agencies and organizations securing cyberspace. The Russian military buys into information confrontation. Here's something they wrote in 2000 in the National Information Security Doctrine, quote, information conflict is the confrontation between two or more states in the information space with the purpose of inflicting damage to information systems, processes, and resources, critical and other structures, undermining the political, economic, and social systems. A massive psychological manipulation of the population to destabilize the state and society, as well as coercing the state to take decisions for the benefit of the opposing force. Similar language has continued to permeate military documents from, you know, through the present day. Furthermore, it's helpfully defined by the Russian military's website. This is why, according to its doctrine, the Russian military's responsibilities now include protecting Russian historical, spiritual, and patriotic traditions and guarding against Russian cultural st-
0: The next speaker we'll take a look at is Renee duressa from the Stanford Internet Observatory. She's the research manager there. And she gets more into the area of, uh, of broadly describing uh election interference on the Internet, and a focus on China. But let me uh, preface that with her four methodologies. Uh, She said there are four methodologies of election interference on the Internet, particularly in social media. The first area is misinformation. Uh, This is information that is inadvertently wrong. It usually comes from trusted media, uh, where they just flat got it wrong, or they got information from someone, That was actually disinformation, and it gets spread as truth until it is proven otherwise. Usually it gets disproved quickly, but by then uh, it's used by foreign actors to discredit the news media altogether. That brings us to disinformation, which Nate Beach-Westmoreland stated uh, is deliberately wrong information that piggybacks on revealed misinformation to establish trust within the, the voters for male, a malevolent agent. Then we have what we all consider to be call, you know, as propaganda. But propaganda isn't necessarily wrong. It's just used out of context to promote a particular candidate or idea. And it's especially useful in exacerbating social divisions. Finally, she said there are agents of influence, and these are actual people, or actually, they, they could be fake people who are beholden to someone else and used in service to an agenda. These agents will be the ones that spread the disinformation in order to create misinformation, which can be then turned into propaganda. So you see how all that ties in together? If we understand these things and we have a better uh, way of figuring out what people are trying to do with this and the things, these practices go back to the invention of the printing press. Because even during the uh, uh Revolutionary War or prior to it, leading up to it, uh, people like Thomas Paine used the printing press to spread his particular propaganda. Now, you may be upset to hear him that, but that was his specific, his, his whole thing was to persuade people to rebel against the British crown. Right or wrong, it was propaganda. Okay, And it's been used ever since by disseminating that stuff to other people. But unlike the uh, like print and then blogs, social media has a built in audience because with a blog, you have to build your audience. Ninety nine percent, according to uh, of blogs, according to Dresta, never really have much of an audience at all and they don't get shared. Okay, but social media has this built in audience that's based on friends and family and connections that have all been tied together, measured and then pushed by the social media platform. Whatever you share goes out to your specific network and then gets shared to their specific network and then amplified to thousands of people. They eliminate editorial gatekeepers who do the fact-checking and then replace them with algorithms that are easily gamed, uh, which is what the SEO is really all about consolidating the audience around specific perceptions in the form of information targeted to specific opinions, and the agents of influence can be faked more easily on social media than they can with blogs and emails and that sort of thing. The goal is to distract, persuade, entrench, and divide the electorate by amplifying social fissures. Because of this, social media is less trustworthy than mainstream media, but more people rely on the former than the latter today. Ironically, hostile state actors ban many social media platforms while maintaining social media accounts outside of their borders to do the very things they're trying to stop others from doing. And we're seeing that trying to be applied here in the United States with ban on Chinese social media apps. I'm not saying whether that's wrong or right. It is a problem, though, in that uh, we we are starting to copy the practices of foreign actors, which is not necessarily a good idea. Now, a common tactic is to take a news story and have a fake account oppose as a citizen on the ground to set the record straight by showing an isolated but negative scene similar to what the Trump administration did in Portland. By showing isolated scenes of violence, they presented a story of an entire city of Portland in chaos when the entire protests and acts of violence were centered in a four-block area. Now let's go to deresta's talk and get it where she gets into the actual weeds about how the Chinese government uses these tactics. <laughs>
2: So let's start with China. (laughs) Uh, China is emerging as a power player in the information operations arena. It's a lot of conversation about what China is doing with information operations right now. Uh, Those of you in the audience are already familiar with their network infiltration capabilities, uh, which again, they split between the PLA, some military entities, some private contractors. Uh, There are some similar splits in how they think about their propaganda apparatus. So when we talk about that broadcast or mass media capability, um, China has decades of experience in both overt and covert narrative management. The government has prioritized it for decades, particularly inward looking. So a lot of China's capabilities were developed uh, for the purpose of controlling information within China. And so what we're seeing now is how they're taking those inward facing capabilities Uh, And beginning to expand outward, beginning to kind of deploy those same tactics in areas and regions where they want to have influence uh, outside of their borders. So, when we talk about media based propaganda, there's a metaphor that researchers like to use of a monochromatic spectrum. And that monochromatic spectrum corresponds to how attributable the content is. So, on the left over here, um, we have overt content like China Daily or the People's Daily. Um, The CCP spends billions of dollars on dozens and dozens of these newspapers and broadcast channels. They are regionalized for areas of interest. Um, They are language localized, but they are very, very obviously attributable to the Chinese Communist Party. So there's no concealment of where that information is coming from or what it is. So this is what we call white propaganda sometimes. But then we get into that gray area in the middle. And for China, this takes the form of things like content farms, which are websites that echo CCP talking points with kind of uncanny frequency, or they push out fake political stories about uh, rivals, rival government ministers, uh, people who have in some way, you know, Taiwanese politicians who have displeased Beijing. But it's really hard to tell whether they're actually attributable as mouthpieces of the state. Sometimes, Digging shows that there's a financial relationship or ties between the owner of the site and the government minister, but the attributability of the message remains concealed. And that's our kind of gray area. And then finally, there's the wholly unattributable dark part of the spectrum, which usually involves very active misdirection. So this is where you hear um, the word inauthentic being tossed around, right? So uh, the example I picked here, it says dream news That site doesn't appear to exist. Uh, It existed largely as a Twitter property to talk about the Hong Kong protesters and ultimately Twitter attributed it to the CCP uh, and took down the account. The overall goal of that entire broadcast apparatus is to tell China's story well. So referring back to the distract, persuade, entrench, divide framework, China's primarily concerned with persuasion, sometimes distraction. And when we think about the intersection of that overt broadcast propaganda ecosystem, and then even the kind of more subversive gray and, uh, and black media kind of uh, properties on the far side of that monochromatic spectrum, the, there's an intersection with social media. So the overt propaganda properties, even though Facebook is banned in China, all have absolutely massive uh, Facebook pages. So CGTN, for example, has 106.7 million followers. So since these platforms are banned in China, this is quite clearly intended for audiences outside of China. So this is how we think about full-spectrum information operations in the form of using these powerful broadcast tools on social media and they, cons- they they persist in trying to grow their follower counts, uh, trying to amass influence globally, and you can go and you can look at the ads that they run and you can see where they're targeting the ads, and so you can see the amassing of audiences beyond the borders using the ad tools that Facebook makes available to them. So they're running ads to kind of boost their content to the rest of the world. But beyond the expansion into overt social media, there's also the kind of uh, dark spectrum of, of social media as well. So, CCP has expanded uh, to, in, to beginning to incorporate uh, troll accounts and fake cutout media properties. So, this is in a way an outgrowth of a strategy that they've deployed inwardly since 2004. There's the 50 Cent Party or the Wumao, the kind of fake commenter army used to distract uh, within China. And we see that tactic being ported to Facebook and Twitter. So, the Hong Kong protests. These are all. Um, uh, this is the images on the slide are collateral from a Twitter takedown and a Facebook takedown in August and September of 2019. So this is attributable subversive uh, kind of black propaganda from you know deployed on social media in the form of these fake accounts. So Hong Kong protests were the first topic on which Western social media platforms concretely attributed activity to the CCP. The Hong Kong protests attracted worldwide attention and what you began to see was as Western media and others began to talk about them, these Twitter accounts would kind of come out of the woodwork to to respond to the journalists uh, to tell them no, they had it wrong. Or regular people who expressed sympathy or solidarity with the Hong Kong protesters would be deluged by these accounts telling them that Uh, high-profile incidents, you know, kind of clashes between protesters and police were being misreported by Western media, pretending to be local people on the ground in Hong Kong who just wanted to set the record straight. So after the first Twitter takedown in uh, August and September of 2019, those of us who researched the operations, looked at the accounts, uh, were given a second data set in June of 2020, so just about a month ago. And the image uh, on screen here is something that we produced where we looked at the topics that the accounts were talking about when the accounts were created. So what you started to see was the immediate reconstituting of the accounts. So they lost their Hong Kong bot, so to speak, Hong Kong personas in the early takedown and immediately the creation dates of the accounts that came down in June 2020 uh, date back to 2019. A lot of them were created in 2019. So what we start to see is again the pink accounts are talking about Hong Kong, the green accounts are, are attacking a, a dissonant uh, Guo way. the kind of dark blue and yellow as you see appear off to the side that's around the time of the Taiwan election, and then the last Uh, The last group of accounts that are created and kind of turned on to talk about topics of interest to China, talk about COVID-19. So again, what we see here is a commitment to turning on these accounts. Uh, They're not developed over kind of a long time horizon with a lot of forethought. They're very much a reaction to a precipitating crisis that the government feels it has to respond to, or uh, a topic of interest that it feels that it needs to address. And so the COVID crisis—you know—these accounts are created in January of 2020. Um, the pandemic has been a domestic and international crisis for China. It was accused of cover-ups domestically, of mishandling the pandemic, both domestically and internationally. And there were, of course, claims that it was culpable for a global disaster. So it began this full-court press to kind of hack public opinion with regard to COVID-19 narratives. And what we see is the entirety of the broadcast ecosystem, the social ecosystem, all of the overt and covert means at its disposal, uh, put to use, pushing out a particular narrative about coronavirus. So we see entrenched, persuade, distract, divide, you know all of the methods kind of put to work across the entire spectrum here. So we have uh, within China, oops. <laughs> uh, within China, we have the sort of censorship of individuals and information channels to control the domestic perception. So, in the center there, uh, you see one of the whistleblower doctors who then uh, unfortunately went on to pass away from the virus. Um, you see massive English language state media pages writing posts about the World Health Organization praising China's response. Uh, those posts were then boosted on Facebook using Facebook's ad tools to ensure that they reached large global audiences. There were Overt attributable social media accounts belonging to uh, Chinese diplomats, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs down there. Um, you see, you know, they're using kind of, they 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 flip back and forth between funny things that are likely to be retweeted because they're engaging. Uh, this there's they're tweeting conspiracy theories there, linking to kind of um, media sites like Global Research, a kind of known conspiracy theory site. Uh, they're being a lot more aggressive in their communications, and then what you'll see a lot of the time is when these prominent figures tweet, uh, the kind of bot accounts kind of come out of the woodwork to retweet and amplify. So that's an interesting dynamic that happens. Where does the lift come from? Again, if you make, a, if you if you create a sufficient amount of lift using inauthentic accounts, it will oftentimes create this. Uh, indication that a lot of people have been talking about or tweeting this, you know, retweeting this, this content that makes real people begin to pay attention and then real people begin to retweet. And that's how you kind of cross that chasm from inauthentic into authentic and get additional lift. And then of course, from the prior slide, covert Twitter accounts were revealed to have praised China's pandemic response. But now I want to caveat something. So the June data set, June 2020 takedown consisted of 23,800 followers, I'm oh, sorry, 23,800 accounts, but 92% of those accounts had less than 10 followers. That's, that's pretty terrible. <laughs> um, the accounts tweeted about 350,000 times, and the average engagement per tweet was 0.81, so most of the tweets didn't even have a single like, retweet, or favorite. Um, the max tweet engagement was 3,700, so across the entirety of this, you know, kind of almost six to nine month operation, um, they really didn't do a very good job at actually getting real people to pick up their content and amplify it. This is relatively terrible engagement.
0: So I'm going to stop it there because she uh, she goes really deep into the weeds. But let me try and summarize here. Uh, You can tell fake Twitter accounts fairly easily because they use stock photos and they use uh, rather obscure uh, uh, titles, like you'll see a name and then a string of numbers. Uh, That's very typical of a bot or a fake account. And... You see that in almost every program, even the Russians do this. But while China's social media disruption is primarily on, on focused on distracting from their own negative stories, Russia has a different focus, and according, according to Daresta, they are best in class. While Russian fake accounts don't have as great a following as China or North Korea or Iran, they get more engagement in targeted countries like the US, UK, and France. For example, there was a purported news agency called InsideSyria.com which issued reports on what was going on in the Middle East. But here's the thing, there were no reporters on the ground for InsideSyria.com. All of the stories originated in St. Petersburg, Russia through an organization called the Internet Research Agency. And if you've been paying attention to the news... You know exactly who they are because they were the ones that were behind the hack of the DNC uh, website as, and as well as the source of information that went to WikiLeaks. So instead uh, the organization will target trusted media sources and send leaks and leads that are disseminated by mainstream media and ends up validating fake stories. That's how disinformation becomes misinformation. And the Russians have honed their skills over years by sending out fake news about fracking and Monsanto, for a matter of fact, to environmentally concerned Americans. Whereas fracking and, and, and the things that Monsanto did uh, with chemicals that cause cancer may be valid. This Many of the stories that you heard and the concerns that you, you you might have about that, are probably wrong. So you need to get better informed. How do you do that? Well, for one thing, you stop listening to all of the, you pay attention to where this stuff comes from. If you don't recognize the source, you should employ a zero trust foundation right from the beginning and say, maybe these guys aren't right. Maybe I shouldn't share this stuff. Maybe I should do some research. And you should find out if that same story is the source of news stories in trusted situations, because I'm afraid my compatriots in the news business have a tendency to jump because they want to be the first out with the story. They're starting to learn and we need to start learning as well. That's what I wanted to share with you from the Black Hat 2020 conference. Uh, it was fascinating. I hope to go again next year, and I hope it's virtual because I hate Las Vegas. This has been Lou Covey with Crucial Tech, a Footwasher Media production. Oh, by the way, if you're interested and want to have us tell your story, uh, drop a line to us at footwashermedia.com contact, or you can go up on the anchor.fm site and leave a voice message. Uh, where we can get back to you. You might even have some questions and comments you want to make about this particular episode. So thanks for listening. See you soon.